My next guest just might be one of the nicest guys in the advertising and marketing industry. He is the founder of Church and State, host of the podcast The Coup, an author, speaker, comedian, and most importantly, a husband and father. It gives me great pleasure to welcome back to the show, Ron Tite. In your book, you talk about um, telling somebody your job is to shut the fuck up. Yeah. Can you tell me about like what happened there and then how did you, because in the book, you sort of, you say, this is what I did, but you know, this is the type of person I am and, and you'll see companies that do something similar. So tell me about what, what happened, how did you fix it and how did you rectify it? Because it sounds like you still work with this person or know this person. I don't work with her, but okay. uh, yeah, but I still uh, respect and admire her. She's yeah. a wonderful marketer and she's a, an old friend. But at the time it was, you know, the, the, the principle in the book that's outlined is called an integrity gap. Yes, that's right. And an integrity gap is when the actions of a person within an organization contradict what the organization supposedly stands for. Yep. Or it's the actions when a person contradicts and creates a perception that is out of whack with the reality. Mm -hmm. And so it's either, you know, as an individual leader, you're like, hey, everyone thinks that you're the fun-loving guy. Yeah, on stage, but, but, happy, happy. Yeah, but their experience <laughs> is anything but that, you yeah. know. And so it's either that, oh, well, the, this, the one encounter they had with me was the time when I was really frustrated or I was a prick. We all have those moments, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so in this case, it was, yeah, it was in a, in, in a radio record. And the, the way radio record works, there's a very old school approach to who has a role and what is said in that role. And so as the writer and the creative director on the spot, I was there working with um, an audio engineer and with a track director and with two talent in the booth and two producers and two clients and an account person. And so we got it to the place where we really wanted it. And we look, go around the room and say, is everybody good? Like, I think we're good. And the client said, yeah, that's great. We're good to go. And it was the account person who spoke up and said, that's sounding a little aggressive to me which then derails the entire thing. And now we have 10 people in a room. We're paying extra money for a studio, mm -hmm. addressing a comment that shouldn't have been made. Mm. <clears throat> but you know, within the traditional rules that the account creative collaboration typically happens before you get into that room. And once the client has said, yep, I'm good with it, then everything should be fine. Yeah. So that was something that didn't, it was just, it just, everybody in the room knew that that is not the way that goes. Yeah. And everybody looked and was like, who's going to say something? And so I just, I pulled her out in the hallway. Yeah. And said, let me remind you, your job is to shut the fuck up. Mm. And, and then went on to say like, look, this is, this is the way this needs to go. Yeah. And it was, and it was as much. Not those the choice of the words. Because the choice yeah. of words were horrible, right? Yeah. It's absolutely horrible. Not to mention the gender imbalance and the title imbalance, all that kind of stuff. It's just horrible on every level. But I think where it came, it really did come from a, a, a good place because yeah. aside from getting us all out of that, I knew that the entire room lost respect for that person. Or, mm. or not lost respect, but the entire room saw that as being, oh, she doesn't know that you're not supposed to do that. Mm -hmm. And it showed an, a, a lack of 
experience on yeah. her part. So I was trying to look out for her and say, like, look, as you move forward, you need to know that if you do that again, yeah. you're just going to be seen like you're an ex inexperienced person. And I know you're not because you're a great account person. Yeah. So, but that was, and I think if anybody else heard that, they would have thought, what a prick. Yeah. And they would be completely justified in feeling that way. And about it's me. interesting because it, you, you don't get that out of the book that you sort of, you know, took it, it was a one on one rather than in a room full of people. Yes, I, I, I pulled her aside. I would have never, I would have never yeah. done that in front of a group of people. That's, yeah. that's even worse. Yeah, yeah. It's it can't get much worse. But <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's let's go back a bit. Um, the genesis of this book. I know you were writing a speech. Yeah. Um, and sort of this came out of a speech. But what was, I guess, what did you want to, how did this turn into a book? Well, it's, it all started when I was doing an episode on CBC The Goods. And okay. it was a daytime TV show. Yeah. And they say, can you walk us through an approach to personal branding? Okay. So, our, so our viewers at home could, you know. And so I started going down the, and the producer who was great kept saying, too sophisticated. They're not marketers. They're not marketers. So out of frustration, I said, like, <laughs> look, a personal brand is just based on what you think, what you do, and what you say. Yeah. And so I built the model, Interesting. That the simplified model for the show mm -hmm. to get this across. And I did it. I was like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. And then I was working with Michael and Amy Port and talking about a speech and said, look, like, I just, I just need, I just, something's not working right. And it's going very well. I'm getting great reviews. I'm getting referrals. But I think I'm getting by on charm and humor. Yeah. Um, not good looks, but charm <laughs> and humor. And I said, I just think I can take it up a level. And I, I'm, and I think at that point, I was doing about 55 speeches a year. Wow. And this year, I'll do, I think, 72. So I just, there was, I just felt there was something missing. And so I said, come to see a keynote. And they came. And it went very well, but they, they came up and they're like, we have some notes. Okay. And they said, we don't know what this speech is about and we need to oh, deconstruct hmm. it and everything. And so then I was like, well, I did this show and I said that it's based on what you think, what you do, and what you say. And yeah. they're like, that's it. So that was the first genesis of it. And then the way I build material, I think like a comedian or like a speaker, in that if I read a blog post, I go like, oh, what is this point that this article is making, I think is really, really relevant. So I designed the slide right then and there of how I'm going to use that in the next speech. Mm. I take an, I create an image, I create a line, whatever. I create the slide and I put it into a bucket or I put it into a structure. Mm. And then I force myself in the next speech to then use it. Interesting. And so over the course of a year, I keep building the content, even though it doesn't happen in every speech, mm -hmm. but I keep building the content something within newer, the- Something newer, something more relevant. Yeah, 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 exactly. Oh, this is for the finance industry, you know, yeah. whatever. Yeah. So I just keep building it. And then what I also do is I then take that content and I move it over to Scrivener, which is a book writing software. Okay. So I had been writing the book for over a year yeah. before I took the year to then really write to it. write the book. So you, did you know in your head that this was coming about for that year you were quote unquote writing the book or you were sort of going through this process of fine tuning all your speeches yeah. that it, sort of naturally fit into? Yeah, it was yeah. building content. And some of the stuff where you, you know, I'd go and I'd deliver, you know, I call it the new two. Every speech has a new two minutes okay. that I've never, ever, ever done before. Okay, yeah, yeah. To see if there's anything there. Yeah. And most often it's like, eh, 
yeah, that's fine. I've got better stuff or more relevant stuff, or maybe that's good for, uh, you know, CPG company or something. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm always trying out new stuff. And some I found that sometimes, this doesn't work in a speech, but man, the writing of it could be really interesting. And so I would write it and go, I'm, the, I'm only going to use it somewhere as a written piece. Not, mm. it doesn't work as a, as a spoken word. Yeah. Um, I've never been cooler as when I just called the speech spoken word, by the way. <laughs> Disruption! <laughs> no. I, uh, so that's how I did it. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Let me, let me ask this question from a comedian standpoint. I Every year I go to New York for Ad Week, and from that week, three to four days, I'm down at the Comedy Cellar. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been fortunate enough to see people uh, perform there, and then within a year, a Netflix special comes out. And I go, oh, yeah, they were workshopping their stuff. Yeah. How do you – you're doing 50 to 75 speeches mm-hmm. every year. So if I, take, if I think about that as a comedian, you're not in small little rooms doing that. You're in front of hundreds of people. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you workshop? Is, is literally every speech, every second speech, a workshop on the previous one? No. I, I mean, the one, I've got gold bits, right? We've all – Got like every comedian, you're like you've got your gold bits. They've they're you've worked out the kinks. They're efficient. They're you know where they're relevant, when you can use them, when you can't use them, why they work, you know, yeah, uh, all that. Then I've got the new two, which is like every two minutes I go okay, or every speech there's like what is the two minutes, and that's not even, that's just trying to see if there's anything there, yeah, and it's that simple. Is that there anything for you to keep it fresh? A little, yeah, you're right, and partially it's. Partially, it's to, like I have to keep writing new stuff. I can't just be delivering the same speech I gave last year. Yeah. So there always has to be new stuff. I always have to try stuff that is industry-specific. Mm. But you're right in that when you mix in new material you've never done or thought of really before, it forces you to, to perform in the moment to make it work for that crowd. Yeah. And then you quickly walk away going like, no, there's nothing there. Um, but um, uh, in terms of... Whether I when I try new materials, so this just happened three weeks ago. I was doing the art of leadership. Okay. Fifteen, sixteen hundred people. I had done a bunch of art of leadership before, mm-hmm. so I'm always conscious of like, are there people in the room who've heard this bit before? So I'm always, you know, like yeah. I can try new stuff. Probably thirty minutes before I went on stage, I decided. I'm going to end on something completely new, and it's not a new two. It's like a new ten. Wow. Never, ever, ever tried it before. Mm. A very personal story about the death of my father. Okay. And that I thought I could make funny. Hmm. And, and then I thought, fuck it. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. Let's try it out. And um, Martin Perlmuter, who is the founder of Speaker Spotlight, who is the bureau that I'm exclusive with, came backstage to say hi. And he goes, hey, I got a couple of clients here who are here just to see you, to see if they want to book you. And I said, that's great. Oh, by the way, I'm trying something new. I'm going to close with something completely new. And he's like, what's it about? Like, it's about death. And he's like, all right. (laughs) So I said, you just need to tell me whether it works or not. Okay. And I was so what I, what I was most concerned about yeah. was could I get a crowd to laugh about death, especially about the death of my father? Yeah. And so I started the bit by going, "Look, you need to know 
that every ounce of your body is going to say you shouldn't laugh at this. I'm telling you it happened to me. Please laugh. Because I find it funny. Yeah. And it worked. It totally worked. And um, what was interesting was, I was like, I know the story will work. I'm not sure about the link back and that. So, I, but I just, and I'm now, you know, after 20 years of stand up and whatever, 10 years as a speaker, I can go out and go, I'm pretty confident I can make this work. You know what can work. You know what gets laughed. You know what gets people thinking, writing in their notebook. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. There's that experience. Yeah. And I can make it work on, like, I can just, I can know I can perform it. I can find where the, it won't be perfect. Yeah. But it will be passable, and then I'll make it better. So the, the line I'll use in terms of comedy is, like, you got to pan for silver and work for gold. Hmm. You know, you can't, people are expecting the gold bits. They don't, they don't present themselves. They really don't. You look for silver, and you're like, there's something interesting there. Yeah. Okay. Let's keep pay- let's keep working it, working it, working it, working it, working it, and then three months later, now you got a gold bet. That's interesting. Yeah. If you don't mind, can we stay on the comedy bit? Of course. We seem to be going through a. And I don't know if it's. It might have something to do with Netflix throwing all this money at comedians to do specials. Mm-hmm. But we seem to be going through, and I think you 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 talk a little bit about it in your book. Mm-hmm. This this a new golden age. Yeah. Uh, in comedy. Mm-hmm. Um. But at the same time, we have this, um, especially with what has happened recently with Don Cherry mm-hmm. and the situation he found himself in with what we what people are calling cancel culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of comedians I sense that are sort of angry at cancel culture, yet we're we're still seeing this renaissance mm-hmm. in comedy. What is working in comedy that that is? Um, that, that people are really excited about it and comedians are really excited about it. I think there's two sides to that. The one side is that the the I think where there's comedy that's coming in really powerful comedy is 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 in the silence that follows the punchline, not the punchline itself. Okay. And so if you look at Hannah Gadsby's Nanette, who, you know, I think is one of the most powerful comedy specials in a very, very long time where she quits doing stand-up halfway through and goes back and says, I'm not going to play that game anymore. And she talks about growing up, you know, gay in Tasmania and and how, as a comedian, she also did this self-deprecating thing when, in fact, why did she have to do that? And so it's these incredibly moment, like very serious parts. Hmm. So set you up with the comedy, get you paying attention, seeing you something from another perspective. But in the moment of silence that follows actually delivers a message that you you either you didn't expect to hear but man you feel really uh it's a really uh it's a different emotion that you feel after it but it 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 is i think that's and then people hop on and go like well it's not technically stand-up like you know what it is it is really like i don't care i mean the thing about comedy is that it shouldn't have rules. It's the very nature of comedy and the creativity that surrounds it yeah. is that there shouldn't be rules. And so you've got, you know, it started with Hannah Gasby, then you've got Mike Birbiglia, and thank God for jokes, ending his show saying, like, don't quote me out of context. You've got Adam Sandler, who ends his Netflix special 100% Fresh with both a touching tribute to Chris Farley and then this beautiful tribute to his wife. Mm-hmm. And b- beautiful. And, uh, you know, when you... And preceded by very funny stuff. But when I walk away, I walk away feeling something really, really different because of that serious stuff. And so there are people who are doing that. 
But then I think I think the golden age of comedy right now is that mixed with the social issue, social cause, and that you know, and this was my friend Mitch Joel and I were talking about this and how comedy is saying the stuff that music used to say. You know, music used to be the thing that would rebel against the establishment and take down politicians. And yeah, uh, who the fuck in music is saying that anymore? Nobody is saying that anymore no. in music. I don't yeah. know. It's really it's not. Um, uh, certainly, maybe aspects of hip hop. Of, yeah. of that there are but it's a, it's certainly kind of one conversation not justified but one conversation so I think comedy if you look at the Dave Chappelle work where he's looking at the Me Too movement but he's looking at it from a total view a 360 view and he is poking fun at it but the goal of the fun is not just to have fun but it is actually to cause social change and before, comedians would kind of do that. I mean, if you look back to the early George Carlin stuff, it's just they didn't deliver the message. They they set you up with the comedy and let you take away the message that they wanted you to take away with on your own. Mm. Now comedians are going, I'm going to tell you what I want you to walk away. Yeah, interesting. Set you up with the comedy and then deliver the really important message. And I think why comedians are getting frustrated is that that has always been the role of comedy. That great stand-up comedy is at its heart that that you can say anything and because you can say anything you can say the things that nobody wants to say and when you look at any social cause and any social movement and any social progress is has started by people saying the things that nobody wanted to say hmm. and i don't know the exact specifics but if we sure, go back sure, to sure. you know the end of slavery i mean at some point somebody said why are we doing this yeah somebody said that yeah Somebody first raised the question, and now that's comedians. If you go back and look, yeah. you know, if you go back and look at all the organizations, would you know the age-old example of Blockbuster, yeah, and all the things that Netflix took them out. Go back, listen to stand-up comedy before the demise of Blockbuster. Stand-up comedians are pointing at what's wrong at block with Blockbuster. Mm -hmm. They're telling you, yeah. Like I'm, you know, like, uh, you know, oh, Blockbuster. Um, oh, I can't remember the community, but it was like, um, uh, oh, what is this? Uh, your definition of latest release was a movie that came out eight years ago, or you know, they won't sell you porn, but they'll rape you with late fees. You know, like all these things that people yeah. complained about Blockbuster. Stand-up comedians were saying that radio, about Blockbuster. Yeah, yeah. You know, way, way back then, yeah. Yeah. So I think when you look at all the things that are wrong with society. It's stand-ups who are pointing at it going, why Why is this happening? Yeah. But they're doing it through humor. Interesting. Um, this this relates a little bit um, to, uh, you also talk about um, John Stewart in, in your book mm -hmm. uh, and sort of the, the uh, how he changed late night. Um, Greg Tilston mm -hmm. uh, and a good friend, good friend of both of ours. Yeah. Um, we were talking last week, somehow we were talking about uh, CBC's The National. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how he likes it. And I looked at him and go, you watch the news still? Yeah. And he looked at me and goes, yeah, I've been watching it since Peter Mansbridge. I go, I can't remember. You know, the last, I think the last time I watched it was, you know, CFTO News. Yeah. Or, yeah, or yeah, something, yeah, yeah. something like that. Like I, yeah. Because I get the news. I'm all, Gord Martineau. Yeah. I get the news all the time from <laughs> everywhere. Um, but I was also thinking at the same time, and I don't know if I was just, I wasn't shy to say about sort of, I also get my news from late night 100%. comedians, and it was weird that that I get that. 
Um, and you get it now. You not only get the headlines and stuff, but you get a you get a deep dive on stuff. You if do you look at the Patriot Act by Hassan Minhaj. Oh my right? goodness gracious! It's a deep dive on twenty minutes of one thing. Yeah, and you right? don't get that on the news. Yeah, I mean John Oliver does the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as well as well. Why, why do we trust our late? Why do we trust comedians for quote unquote news or or, or truth? Well, I think it goes back to John Stewart's appearance on. Um, crossfire, CNN's Crossfire, and it was on October fifteenth, two thousand and four. And Crossfire was a show, political discussion show that looked at things from both sides of the political spectrum. And they um, usually, you know, when a comedian goes on, they manipulate the conversation so they can give us their best bit, right? Of course. Like that, we yeah. know that that the, sure. the, the host is in on the gag, and they ask the leading questions, so they can do their best bit. And on that night, they were talking about stuff, and John Stewart said, "You're harming America." Yeah. And they said, Tucker Carlson goes, "Geez, John, you're not being very funny." And then John Stewart goes, "No, no, I'm not going to be your monkey." And so on that night, John Stewart, when most comedians would pitch us with their, with their, their material, yeah, decided not to. In fact, he chose purpose over punchline. That there was a soul. To John Stewart, that informed the jokes, yes. and and it inspired the jokes and informed the jokes. But that the soul on that night became more important, and he decided to lead with the soul and protect his integrity, opposed to being the monkey on the stage. And and it was that moment, I think, when people went, "Oh, there's way more than laughs here. Mm-hmm. There's way more than substance here." And I think when you when you combine that with the where news is at, where it's gone through, you know, in in Canada, it's like it's. I'm not saying Canadian news outlets are aren't worthy of this, but the, we've seen the convergence, and we've seen that our news stations aren't just our news stations anymore. Our news stations are actually owned by telcos, who yeah, own yeah. who own who own sports franchises, and they're it's not pure news anymore. And I'm again, I'm not saying that makes them evil, but I think that is like. Sportsnet's leading off with a Blue Jay story. Is it really the top story, or yeah, is that because they own the Blue Jays and they want to drive bums in seats? Yeah. Is it? I don't know. We always have to think about these things, don't we? We do. Yeah. And again, that doesn't make them evil. Well, you know, good shit's good shit. But I, I think that comedians are willing to say the things that others aren't. And so because of that, comedians get painted with a, a brush of integrity that, that few others do. Ron, you've always been kind to me. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me.